0: I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. In our time together the past few weeks, we've been looking at the doctrines of grace. So far, we have studied total depravity. The man is morally unable to come to God on his own as he is ruined by sin. We've looked at unconditional election that in eternity past, the Father elected who would, he would bestow his grace upon without consideration of their merit. And I pray that this time studying these doctrines has been beneficial for you as it has for me Deepening your appreciation for the work of God in your own heart. Today we come to the L in our tulip, limited atonement. Now, many who write on this subject always refer to the controversy, how the controversial nature of this doctrine. But my prayer is that we will not sense any of the controversy here this morning, as we will see from the text. And That is my aim throughout this series is not to convince you of a theological system, but instead to convince you from the scriptures for you to see on your own and be convinced from the text that these five doctrines of grace are indeed Biblical, and they are indeed the means uh, or what it is that we need to know about salvation and how God works. I want to point out that if you were to look at our acrostic tulip, the T indicates what you bring to your salvation, which is your total depravity. The U, unconditional election, indicates the Father's work in salvation. The L today is going to focus on the Son's work in salvation. And then the I is going to focus on the Spirit's work in salvation. So we do have a a Trinitarian salvation. We have the Godhead working to bring ruined men to salvation. What is limited atonement, though? Limited atonement means very simply that Christ's work of atonement was meant for a particular people, that Christ died to save a specific people. Now, what the adverse of this is that the Christ died for everybody equally in the same way, and it is up to the individual whether or not the atonement will apply to them. Opponents of this view bring up passages like John 3.16. It says that God gave His only Son so that the world... He gave His Son to the world because He loved the world. We all know that very well. And that is a common passage that is quoted. Therefore, they will say that the atonement applies to all men equally. That Christ's atoning work on the cross has equal benefits for all men. That view is going to lead us to universalism, if not completely diminish the power of God. Now, before we get too far ahead here, let's go ahead and stand. We'll read our passage together, and we'll dig in. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5 Verses 25, 26, and 27. This is the word of the living God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention now to your word, we desperately need to hear from you. No one needs to hear my thoughts or my opinions. I pray, Lord, that what I would speak this morning would be faithful to what is written, that I wouldn't speak from man-made wisdom that has no power But Lord, that your word would go forth empowered by your spirit, that it would find hearts that have been well-prepared by your spirit to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great and wonderful things in your word, that I would rely entirely on you and your power this morning. We pray that Christ is glorified and his people edified, and we pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So in order to understand what I meant with what I said a bit ago about this leading to universalism, we need to take a second to make sure that we know what we mean by atonement. What does atonement mean? It sounds like just a fancy word that theologians and preachers use, but what does it mean? Do I even need to know this word? Well, of course you do, because it's a biblical word. And it's used in the Old Covenant in the law of Moses specifically. The word in the Hebrew language was used in regards to reconciling a fractured relationship. And it later came to take on the theological meaning of paying for the sins, paying for sins to be cleansed of them. It had the idea of covering sins. The Lord, made provision in the law of Moses for a substitutionary atonement, which just means a substitute. And we see that clearly in the animal sacrifice, this, this, the sacrificial system. The animal, the ox, would be offered on the altar to be the substitute for the people's sins. What This was giving us a, a picture that that sin has consequences, namely, that the punishment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And so they were learning this in the animals dying and shedding their blood. But God would not punish his people, right? He would give the animal as a substitute for his people. We saw this immediately in the garden, did we not? Adam and Eve. They try to atone for their own sins. They try to cover their sin by leafy garments. And God evidently kills an animal because they are clothed with animal skin by the Lord. Something else died in the place of Adam and Eve. And so it has always been. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, you might see on your calendar Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the most holy place. He would first sacrifice the bull or the ox. He would take the blood into the holy place and he would sprinkle the blood on the the mercy seat and he would make intercession for the people. And there, God would see the blood. Their sins would be atoned for that year. This was a shadow of what was to come, obviously. Obviously. It was what we call a type of Christ. It was prefiguring Christ. It was showing us what Christ would eventually do on the cross, that he would be the substitution for the sins of his people to once and for all atone for their sins because he was the spotless, blameless sacrifice. Interestingly, the ESV, which is what I read from here, does not have the word atonement in the New Testament at all. Instead, it has the word propitiation, which means essentially the same thing, but it's a little bit more focused on doing away with the wrath of God. Obviously, what Christ did is he bore the wrath of his people. Once and for all, putting away the wrath of God meant for his people doesn't mean that Christ did not atone for our sins. Of course, he did. But in this new covenant, we have a better sacrifice than in the old covenant. So when we speak of limited atonement, what we mean is that Christ only atoned or only paid for the sins of those who would be saved or the elect or his people. We do not mean that the atoning work of Christ is limited in power or sufficiency. When we say limited atonement, we don't mean that Jesus only died enough for certain people. And if he wanted to save more people, he would have had to have done something more extravagant. No, he's already given all that he could give. And if God had so ordained it, his blood was precious enough and valuable enough that he could have applied it to all sinners throughout all time and space. But we know that that's not the case, don't we? We all do believe in a limited atonement. But it's what we mean by that. See, this view of a limited atonement is indicating that that God has put the limitations on, that's not the greatest word, but he is the one who has designated who the atonement would apply Two, in the opposing view, which would be an unlimited atonement, what is being said is that God the Father laid upon his Son the sins of every single person who would ever live on the planet. That means Pharaoh, that means everybody in the Old Testament, that means the people who stoned the prophets, that means Judas, that means everybody who is currently in hell, that the Father laid on His Son all of their sins. And Christ paid for the sins of all of those people and yet they still go to hell. That is the unlimited atonement view. Is the limitation is placed on the person you get to decide whether or not Christ's blood was spilled for you. What I want to say here at the beginning is that if the father laid upon his son all of the sins of all the people who would ever live, both believer and unbeliever, even people who are in hell and who will go to hell, then this makes God unjust. Why? Well, in the U.S. legal system, we have a term double jeopardy, right? Double jeopardy. That means that one person cannot be charged, prosecuted for the same crime twice. In other words, you stole from bank A on such and such day at such and such time. You can only be prosecuted for that particular crime once. Why? Because it is our justice system. Even fallen men know this. So then what we are saying with an unlimited atonement is that God the Father is punishing His Son, all of the sins of the whole world, every person on His Son for person A. And then person A does not believe in Jesus and goes to hell. And what's he doing in hell? He's paying for his sins. He's taking the wrath of God for his sin. What just happened then is that God punished this person's sin once on Jesus, and then in hell for all of eternity. That's double jeopardy, isn't it? And in our flawed legal system, we know that this is not right. But for some reason, when it comes to the atonement, we say that's exactly how it is. God punishes some sins twice. Friends, God is perfectly just. He's perfectly just. He gives justice its meaning. But, Pastor Matt, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for the sins of the world? It does. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, wait a minute. If propitiation refers to Christ paying for our sins on the cross, thus putting away the wrath of God meant for His people, does this mean that Christ did the same thing for all people, even those who would not be saved? That, my friends, is the question that we want to answer in regards to limited atonement. Thankfully, later on in 1 John, he clarifies this for us by saying in chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who is the us that John is referring to? Believers, of course, as he anchors that propitiatory work in the love of God. Verse 9 makes this plain for us as John refers to God sending His Son that we might live through Him. We've already established in the doctrine of total depravity that sinners are dead in their sins and trespasses. That the second death is in the lake of fire. How can God make us live through Christ without the propitiation of our sins? How can he make someone live in Christ and then send them to hell? Friends, that would be unjust. Now, maybe this is all high and lofty and it seems like this is ambiguous and it's kind of hard to wrap our minds Around, but let me go ahead and say this before we look at our text. There is a sense in which all people benefit from Christ's sacrifice. There is a sense in which everybody benefits. One reason is that Christ was given to the world. What a gift. John says that we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only one from the Father. How many people did Jesus heal? That never believed in him. There is a sense in which all people everywhere, even unbelievers, benefit from the sacrifice of Christ. How about they benefit from Christians who are born again and are transformed by the power of the Spirit. And now they're showing kindness and love and goodwill towards others. That is a direct benefit from the atonement. But what we do not want to say is that God the Father punished all sins for every person on His Son. Otherwise, we would be saying that God is unjust. So, God does have a love for all of the world. I would not deny that. The Scripture says it. But He also has a particular love, a unique love for His people. He shows all people common grace delicious food, sweet tea, the sun in the sky, snow, I love snow. How about meaningful relationships? Unbelievers can have that. That is God's common grace. But he only shows his people special grace. The grace of salvation. The grace of coming to know him. Not all people receive the unique special love that Christ has for his people. Let's look at our text. We're going to see it here. As I said last week, we won't be dealing with everything that this text teaches. We want to have a laser focus on what the text teaches about atonement. I want us to see here four arguments for a limited atonement from Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. The first is the motivation for the atonement. Let's look at it again. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As you know, this passage is from a larger section of Paul's teaching on very practical aspects of the Christian life. And as you can see here, he's clearly directly talking to husbands. And this might seem like a bizarre place to go and learn about limited atonement because he's talking about husbands. But we want to see The example of love that Paul lays out for us that husbands are to imitate. As you can see, he says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Is there anything particular, peculiar rather, about that statement? Christ loved the church. How about the fact that loved seems to be in the past tense? Christ loved the church. Wait a second. Is Paul trying to tell us that Christ used to love the church, but something has happened to the effect that he no longer does? Surely not. Otherwise, Paul would be telling husbands at the same time that it's okay to stop loving their wives as they would simply be following the example of Christ. Further yet, it would mean that he has not loved us with an everlasting love but a short-lived love. And my friends, that would not be good news at all. No, Paul has something else in mind here, doesn't he? He explains it to us right after the comma, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In saying that Christ loved the church, seems best to take that to be pointing us to what Christ did demonstrating his love for the church. There was an act of love that Christ did that displayed His love for the church. And what is it? It's that Christ gave Himself up. That was something that Christ did in the past that displayed His profound love for His church. And it's the kind of action that was so powerful that it continues to. To have its effect today and for all of eternity. Didn't Jesus tell us that this was the motivation for the atonement? He said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. He's telling us. He's laying down his life for his friends. Why? Because of his love. Jesus says that this is the most incredible display of love to die for someone else. But not just dying. Christ died in the place of his friends. We were supposed to die, but Christ died in our place. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We know God and His love because of the love of God towards us. Indeed, we love because He first loved us. And it's this love that becomes the basis of our obedience towards Him. Friends, we know that that God does indeed have a general love for all people, for all the world. I don't want to diminish that at all. But at the same time, he has a unique, special love for his people. This text teaches that how? By saying that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. This love that Christ has for his people is so personal and intimate that he gives us the human frame of reference of marriage. We need only consider wedding vows and the nature of the marriage covenant to understand that this is not the same kind of love that God has for all people. No one in their right mind, of course, will stand at the altar on the wedding day saying that they will love their husband or wife as much as they love everyone else. No, it'd be a horrible marriage, wouldn't it? Bride and groom instead are coming together in a covenant union to love each other uniquely in a special way. And we even say in our vows, forsaking the rest. We say in our vows, forsaking the rest. My friends, where do you think we get this idea from? From Scripture. From the love of God for His people. From the union of Christ and His church. We are commanded as believing people to love all people, of course. Uniquely, husbands here, we are to love all people, aren't we? But we're also to have a special love for our wife that we don't have for everyone else. In this unique love, we imperfectly model the love of Christ for His church. So if we make the atonement about all people and for all people equally, then we're at the very same time lessening the love of Christ for His church and flattening it out and saying that that Christ doesn't have a unique love for His church, but He loves her as much as He loves unbelievers who will go to hell. When People hold to the belief that Christ intended to die for the sins of every single person. They, in effect, diminish this unique love that Christ has for his church, saying he loves all people the same way. But may it never be. Christ has a special love for his people, and it's demonstrated in him giving himself up for her. The first argument for a limited atonement is that it was motivated by love for his church. The second argument is the the actual limitation of the atonement in this verse. He says Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. The motivation is the love for the church which in by consequence shows us the limitation of the church or the atonement. That he loves the church and gives himself up for her. If this wasn't strong enough, look up at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And then he shows us as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see this. He's speaking directly to believers, namely the church at Ephesus and then all believers throughout the world, telling them to imitate God as His beloved children. Are all people on the earth considered the children of God? In the sense that God gives life to everyone? Yes. But in the realest sense, there are the children of God. And then Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that there are children of Wrath. You can't be both a child of God and a child of wrath. You are a child of God or a child of wrath. And so he sings uniquely, children of God, you walk in love the same way that Christ loved us. You, children of God, the way that Christ loved the children of God. How? By giving himself up for who? The children of God. Friends, again, this is a unique giving up of himself for his people. There is a sense in which Christ died for all, that all people benefit from it. But there is a much more specific sense in which Christ died for us, for his children, for his bride, for believers. Christ's sacrifice is indeed sufficient enough for the sins of all people to have been atoned for. But Christ's sacrifice will only have that effect for those whom the Father elected before the foundation of the world. Did the Father elect everyone unto salvation? We know that that's not the case. Then it also follows that the Son died not to bring salvation to everyone, meaning not everyone is saved. He came to save Specific people. This is precisely what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph, didn't he? When he told him that Mary was with child, Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, here it is, his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. He says, this is why you shall call him Jesus. Is because He will save His people. When Jesus came to the earth, it was on a rescue mission. Not to try and save as many people as want to be saved as though He was in a helicopter throwing down a, a rope and just however many people can jump up there and grab the rope, you'll be saved. That's not what happened. Christ came to save specific people. He didn't come to make people redeemable. He came to redeem his people. He did not come to make people savable. He came to save his people. He didn't make people forgivable. He forgave his people. What about John 3.16? The text that everyone uses in an attempt to refute the biblical argument for limited atonement, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's funny because this text is actually quite simple when you keep reading. John goes on to say in the following verses, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, there it is again. There's the world again. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed. God sent his son that the world might be saved through him. That's true. And there will be people from all over the world who are saved. Now, does this mean that whenever we proclaim the gospel, that we are supposed to tell people, hey, friend, you know, if you are of the elect, if you're one of the people Jesus died for, then you can be saved today. Absolutely not. It's not what this text does. It says the whole world, whoever believes. And that's true. Whoever believes will be saved. But who are the ones who will believe? It's the elect. It's those who God before the foundation of the world has elected unto salvation. We learned that last week. Those are the people that Christ bled for. Whoever believes in him is not condemned who are the ones who believe, the ones that God has elected. Now, again, I want to be careful not to completely overlook the fact that the word, word world is used here. I want to reiterate, God has a general love for all of the world. And it is most demonstrated in Him giving His Son. Could He have done anything more extravagant to show His love? no. Could he have just said, I'm just going to pluck out all of the elect of the world and they're just going to come to heaven with me? Sure. But what did he do instead? He wanted to display his love. So he sent his son, born in the likeness of man, to die for sinful man. There is also this unique, special love that God has for his people. John 10.11 I am the good shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. He doesn't say the Good Shepherd lays down his life for sheep and sheep and goats. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Acts twenty twenty-eight. Pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own. Blood. What did he obtain with his own blood? The church. We could go on and on and on, but I believe that we see clearly that the testimony of Scripture is that we can indeed say that Christ died for the whole world, and the whole world reaps some benefit from His sacrifice. Yet Christ bore the sins of His people, atoning for His people and not anyone. Else. The third argument here is the intention of the atonement. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. By intention, I mean the intended outcome of the atonement. As you can see in verse 26, the intended outcome is that his church might be sanctified. Well, how do we know that? Because he says... Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Who? The church. That he might sanctify her. Who's her? The church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The her is the church. MacArthur's commentary on this verse points out that a bride-to-be would be taken down to a river to be ceremonially cleansed in ancient Greece. That it would signify the washing away of her old life as she prepares to enter into covenant with her husband. We can see that illusion here, can't we? And What Paul is writing as he says that Christ did this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Christ is holy and righteous. He cannot stand the sight of sin. He cannot be in communion with a bride who is defiled and filthy. Yet the people whom the Father has elected to be Christ's people, what are we? We're defiled. We're filthy. We saw we're totally ruined by our sinful nature and our own sinning. We've already charged that all are under sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But the Father predestined us unto adoption as sons in love. So the Father ordained to give the Son in love. So the Son came to earth to don a body like ours that would be broken for us in love. The motivation for the atonement was pure, holy love that Christ had for his church and also the hatred of any defilement that she might have. In love, he came to bear the reproach of his people, knowing that we could not pay the debt that we owe to make ourselves pure, knowing that like the leopard cannot change its spots, we cannot change our nature knowing that our hearts are wicked and deceitful, knowing that our thoughts were only evil continually, knowing that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, knowing that we were rebels in love with our sin, He came to bear our punishment so that we might be sanctified. What does that word mean? It means being set apart as holy to the Lord. Do you understand that the very fact that this text states that Christ died so that we might be sanctified and cleansed indicates that we were not at all sanctified, but we were filthy and defiled. We have this idea sometimes that, that we, like our parents, Adam and Eve, that we need to hide our reproach from God, that He must not see the condition that we are in, He must not know that we have sinned against Him, when in reality, He knows full well that we've sinned against Him. But He loves His people so much that He bears the sin that made us His enemies. He bears the punishment of our condemnation that we might be healed by His wounds. He was pierced for our transgressions. You can't hide your sinfulness from God. Do you know why? Because he has already seen it as he laid it upon his son. Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God giving his son, the son coming to die, and the spirit applying that atonement to us is how the Godhead displays the unfathomable love of God to ruin sinners. The believer is not only saved from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. And Christ giving himself up for us to sanctify and cleanse us, he's freeing us from the power of sin. Christ knew that we would be dirty and filthy and ruined. He saw that his bride was not sanctified, that she's not holy. So he died to purify her, to make her clean so that she would not bear the reproach, but that she would be clean and pure and holy. We see that in the consummation of the atonement. Look at verse 27 consummation of the atonement he says so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in Christ giving himself up for us to sanctify us and cleanse us we are forgiven now of our sins we are freed from the penalty of our sins as Christ absolved it. We are freed from the power of our sin and increasingly so as we are growing in sanctification in this lifetime. And there will be one day where we are freed from the presence of sin as Christ presents us to himself holy, without blemish, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. Think about your sinfulness for a moment. Think about your own failings before the Lord. Think about how even after coming to saving faith, every day you sin. That's the human experience, isn't it? Every single Day, we fall short of the glory of God, failing to love Him the way that we ought to, failing to walk in Christ's likeness the way that we ought to. There's going to be a day where we are presented to Christ holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle. Why? Friends, it's not because God has decided to turn a blind eye to your sin that would also mean that God is not just it's because God has dealt with your sin he has poured it on Christ it's not because God just just decided you 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 you're just let me just x out your sin let me just i'm just not going to look at it anymore no it's that he charged your sin to Christ's account on the cross He made him who knew no sin to become sin. Christ died bearing that sin. That's the atonement. Our sin was laid upon us. Our iniquity was laid upon us. He was pierced for our transgressions. His body was broken on the cross for us, for our covenant breaking. The Father laid it upon him, pouring his wrath meant for you on his Son, So that just the way that he charged your sin to Christ's account. You, when you call upon Christ, he will charge Christ's righteousness to your account. His perfect law keeping. His active and passive obedience. The way that he died suffering for you and I. And the way that He perfectly fulfilled the law's commands. That righteousness becomes yours. Because your sin, your unrighteousness, became Christ's on the cross. And He propitiated for you. That means that God's wrath is extinguished for you. That means that when God looks at you, He's no longer moved in anger to punish you. He's moved in love to bless you. He's moved in love to care for you. He's moved in love to make you more like Christ. He's moved in love to protect you and to keep you until the last day. Do you know why? Because you're the bride of Christ. And there will be a day where you are presented to Christ. The Father is not going to allow His people that His love gift to His Son to not make it to that day. Because God is faithful. And He is loving. And these are the people that He has given to His Son. Revelation 5.9 they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ultimately, that's what it looks like to die for the world is that from every tribe, from every language... From every people and from every nation, Christ is drawing His people to Himself, saying, look at the blood spilled for you. It was done in love so that you would be cleansed and sanctified, so that one day you would be presented to Him and you could join in this song, saying, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is He to be praised, for He was slain for my sin, for He died in my place. Isaiah says, Look at my hands. Your name is inscribed in my hands. My friends, those hands with your name that was inscribed on them took the nails in your place. Christ loves His people that way. He doesn't love the whole world that way. That's His special, unique love. When this is consummated at the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, who is going to be there? His bride, not anyone else. My friend, will you be there? Will you be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Revelation 19 tells us clearly, blessed is the one who is invited Have you accepted of this invitation? Have you put your trust in Jesus? I can say with all of the confidence of all the scriptures, that if you this morning have not fully trusted in Christ, that the scriptures are clear. If you will trust in him, you will be saved. We can say that to everybody. If you trust in Jesus today, you'll be saved. You'll be at the marriage supper. Your sins will have been reckoned to Christ on the cross. His blood will have been applied to your account. And you will be presented spotless and blameless as a part of the bride of Christ. We believe in a limited atonement not because we think that the death of Christ and the blood of Christ is Limited in power. No, we believe in a definite atonement. We believe in a particular redemption, that a particular people will be redeemed. That the atonement is definitely going to apply to Christ's people. Christ will receive his due reward for his sacrifice. Ultimately, that is what we mean in saying a limited atonement is that all of those who Christ died for, their sins will be forgiven. Period. And praise God that that's the case. Let's stand. We'll pray and we'll sing a song together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving your son, for loving the world and sending your son to the world to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, to redeem a people who would be holy and sanctified, who were not that prior to Christ's work, who could not be that without Christ's work. We thank you for the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us of our sin. We thank you that you have not dealt with us according to our iniquity, because you have dealt it on Christ. Help us to grow in the understanding and our love of this, Lord, so that we would live lives of greater worship, greater dedication and devotion, greater obedience to you. We pray that all that you died for would indeed be saved for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.